0: Hello, this is Overdrive, a program that tries to spread the word about trains, planes and automobiles. I'm David Brown, and in this program we look at news stories, including VW's a surprise winner in the sales race, and the Renault Trezor voted the most beautiful concept car of 2016. We talked to Victorian MP Fiona Patton about concerns over the privatisation of public transport services. Apparently Victoria has let a number of organisations owned by overseas governments run their public transport systems without great success. We talked to the editor of the international publication Jaguar magazine about some classic Jaguars I have been driving and we road test the Jaguar F-Pace SUV a finalist in the World Car of the Year Awards. Now, have a question or a comment? Send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. You can listen to longer segments of each of the features by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Now, to begin the program, let's have the news. Initial figures would suggest that for Volkswagen there is no such thing as bad news. Reports indicate that despite all the negative press associated with the Dieselgate affair, Volkswagen will be declared the world sales leader for 2016. Toyota has confirmed that it sold 10.175 million vehicles worldwide, not enough to top the 10.3 million sold by Volkswagen but digging down a little deeper suggests that Volkswagen has suffered for its indiscretions. Volkswagen's success was strongly based on the fast-growing Chinese market. Their sales declined in Germany and most of North America. In the critical United States, Volkswagen brand sales slipped 7.3% last year. At the time of reporting, General Motors had not listed its 2016 sales figures, but it is highly likely that they will maintain their third place. General Motors last topped the world sales figures in 2011, but only because Toyota had supply problems arising from the tsunami. Last week, we reported that Tesla had been exonerated from any guilt over the death of a customer who was driving one of their cars on autopilot because the driver should have been paying attention. At the time the crash was first reported, many developers called for research to continue on developing autonomous cars because they would have an overall benefit despite some setbacks. This approach now seems to be reinforced with a new report from the American National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Tesla vehicle crash rates across all its cars dropped almost 40% after the installation of Autopilot's Auto Steer feature the report reveals. Visual and audible warnings and disengagement of the auto steer system for the remainder of a trip are some of the steps Tesla has taken to keep drivers engaged when autopilot is activated. It's not nearly as bad as the Ford Mustang getting a two-star rating, but nonetheless both Tesla and BMW's electric vehicles have failed to achieve the US Insurance Institute for Highway Safety's top safety rating. The group, which represents the insurance industry, measures crashworthiness in five areas – small overlap front, moderate overlap front, side, roof strength and head restraint. To receive a top safety pick designation, vehicles must earn a good rating in all five areas and also be equipped with a front crash prevention system rated as advanced or superior. Tesla defended the safety of its Model S, saying that it had received a five-star safety rating from the National Highway Safety Administration and a five-star rating from Euro NCAP. Model S still has the lowest ever probability of injury of any car ever tested by the NHTSA, Tesla said. When Overdrive tested the Toyota Mirai fuel cell car last year, We enjoyed the ride, but were surprised at how much space the engine took under the bonnet. No more than an ordinary engine, but no less as well. And the car costs the equivalent of about $80,000 as it is sold in America. Like the first hybrid cars, however, the next step is to make the fuel cell power plants more cheaply and smaller. General Motors and Honda have established the car industry's first joint venture to mass produce an advanced hydrogen fuel cell system that will be used in future products from each company. GM and Honda are acknowledged leaders in fuel cell technology with more than 2,220 patents between them. GM and Honda ranked number one and number three respectively in total fuel cell patents filed from 2002 to 2015. The Renault Trezor has been awarded the Festival Automobile Internationals Award for the most beautiful concept car of the year 2016. It's a low-slung sports car in the Lamborghini mould, The front looks a bit overdone, it bulges in the style of the Dodge Viper and would be something that the Batmobile would be proud of. From the side it looks stunning, extremely low and just the right length for a balanced appearance with an elegantly flowing fast back line. From the back it looks somewhere between an F type Jaguar and a 1965 Corvette Stingray. The awards were held in the Hotel des Invalides in Paris. Invalid? We thought that might be what you become from trying to get in and out of the vehicle, although the whole roof comes up to aid access. What price nostalgia? And what is the best way to get a classic car that is comfortable and unlikely to break down? Land Rover suggests you cut out the middleman. If you have a passion for owning an old car, but one that is in excellent condition, you might have to find a tired old model and get someone to restore it. In doing so, they might have to get information and or parts from the manufacturer. Well, why not just let the original manufacturer do the lot? At the first classic car show of the year, the Salon Retromobile 2017, Land Rover will debut the next in the Reborn series. In this case, they carefully a carefully selected 1978 classic Range Rover. Prices from the complete Range Rover reborn restoration will start from 216000 Australian dollars. And that has been the news. Privatization is often promoted as a way to get better efficiencies from existing government organizations, and transport is no exception as and in is indeed at the forefront of the strong push to court private industry involvement. Has it been successful? Jeff Kennett privatized public transport in Victoria along with many other things when he was premier from nineteen ninety two to nineteen ninety nine. Has it worked? Indeed, does he even think it has worked? Northern Metropolitan MP and the state government for Victoria, Fiona Patton, has her doubts, and she joins us on the line now. Fiona, thanks very much for your time.
1: Oh, good morning.
0: Now you suggested that perhaps even Mr. Kennett might not have been totally happy with the outcome.
1: Well, it's interesting. It's certainly um, former Premier Kennett has is, is now l- lamenting the decisions that he made in the well in the last century. Now that. He thought that privatisation would be an effective, cheap way to run our public transport. But what has resulted, what has actually eventuated, is that we're now paying billions of dollars to foreign companies to fairly ineffectively run our public transport. And uh, that, that, was not, that was not his dream when he looked at privatising public transport in Victoria, privatising the operation of public transport in Victoria. And in fact, We changed the V line, so the regional trains in Victoria were put back into the into public management after the private operators just could not manage to keep them, to maintain them, or manage much at all.
0: Indeed, it's often thought that if you privatise, you might be able to get rid of old habits and old Mm. conditions. Yet you're saying that they proved to be inefficient in their management style.
1: Well, that's right, and I don't. I think it's actually been a lack of oversight from the government. So I think we've almost—it's almost like we've given it to the private operators to manage, and then turned out and and the government's turned its back on it. So even the sort of the KPIs or the the basic um, requirements of the of the contracts to those private operators, those basic requirements aren't being met. So you know you might um, be on a on a on a train. To Altona, but you'll end up in Werribee because they won't stop at train stations so that they can ma- maintain an on-time, 83% on-time um, record. Uh, that that is not enough <laughs> that that doesn't work if you <laughs> if you live in Altona.
0: Yeah, um yeah. That sounds to be a little bit like they could run a wonderful system if it wasn't for people.
1: Yes, it's the customers that do get in the way. That's certainly the case.
0: There was a lovely comment from quality management, W. Edwards Deming, I think, that said, if you set one target, people will meet that target no matter what the cost to the company. Mm-hmm. I think you're saying that they may have set a, a KPI or two, but if you focus purely on that, you're not giving an overall good result for the customer.
1: No, that's right. And I think what surprised me when I started to look into this is that um, those performance um, indicators are actually self-assessed.
0: <laughs> yes. So it,
1: the government doesn't even provide oversight. We, we ask Metro Trains, which is um, a, a Hong Kong-owned company, Hong Kong government-owned company. So um, it is, it is government-run, just not by ours. <laughs> but we, we ask them you know, to get their bonuses and incentives for keeping up with those performances, how'd you go? And they say, oh, yes, we did very well. And we say, well, that's great, and we write them a Uh, (laughs) cheque. I certainly think that um, we can can do so much better. And, you know, when we look at our return, I think Victoria's public transport, we get about a 24% return on, on fares.
0: That's not a lot.
1: No, it's it's seriously not a lot. And I, I think we do the worst out of every out of any state in Australia and we're the only state that has privatised the management of our public transport from in my understanding.
0: The issue is that quite often we're so keen to give it away and we think it's mm-hmm. such a difficult thing that we often write conditions into the contract which Well, we don't write enough conditions in. We often make it so, uh, uh, well, so easy or so desirable to give it away. It's like a fire sale.
1: I think that, you know, governments have to, you know, almost have faith in themselves that, yes, we can. (laughs) Yes, we can um, manage our our public transport, and, yes, we can do it as well as a foreign company that it's actually owned. So I think Yarra Trams is owned by the French government, part-owned and metro trains is owned by Hong Kong government so why we're thinking that foreign governments can manage our tra- our public transport system better than we can ourselves I think really needs to be reviewed
0: now the other thing is I believe there's a bill coming up in government to cr- try and bring together the various silos that we know exist in providing the different aspects of transport
1: yeah that's absolutely correct David. and I think this is um, this is a very sensible, sensible decision to to put to bring in all of our transport departments under one umbrella, and I think that certainly. Well, I would hope that that results in better decisions. And as we were talking about um, offline, the notion of using the corridor. So as we're building these these big roads that we're we're looking at effective public transport um, opportunities while we're do, spending that money on the development of roads for example.
0: this whole silo mentality has been talked about for years I think even yes yes minister had a, <laughs> a episode on that which is true that we, we we really tend to then think about the supply side don't we if I work in the roads, Uh, departments I tend to think that's good although I did hear someone from Vic Roads the other day saying you know we really do have to have a broader opinion it it's to everyone's benefit if less people drive in congested time so they they, I think started to have a much broader view perhaps within the departments they have but do you think we've gone far enough in the political arena?
1: No I don't and I and I certainly um, no I don't think that and when you look at also regional versus urban issues as well Mm. so you know certainly um victoria some of our regional roads really really appalling 36 percent of the growth population growth in australia is happening in victoria we cannot keep keep all of those people in melbourne cbd Mm. we need to be expanding out to our regional areas and it makes economic sense and it makes environmental sense and it makes sense on every level to start developing Victoria regionally but we can't do that without good roads and rail and hopefully by by bringing all of this in under one roof we can start thinking about this in a much uh, more logical way.
0: Fiona it's lovely to talk to you Uh, more power to those thoughts Uh, I appreciate your time thank you very much. Thank you, David. And that's the Northern Metropolitan MP for the Victorian State Government, Fiona Patton, talking about uh, transport, both in how we manage the system but also how we might have a much broader, more constructive way of looking at what our needs are and what the solutions should be.
2: This is Overdrive Across Australia. I was down
0: in Melbourne recently and I had to visit a friend who'd lived in Kooyong near the tennis complex where a major tournament was on. At the club was a big sign that said free parking for the first 20 Jaguars. Now I was driving a 1988 XJ Sovereign with their characteristic pepperpot wheels. It looked pretty good but was not quite in concourse condition. I didn't try to get a privileged spot, but there is something about driving some older classic cars, and on that weekend I drove three old Jaguars and I loved it. Is that just me? Well, to talk about the glory days of this style of motoring, I have on the line Les Hughes, who is the editor of Jaguar Magazine Worldwide. Les, thanks very much for your time.
2: Uh, my pleasure, David.
0: Would I have been accepted amongst the fraternity with my older car, do you think?
2: You absolutely would. <laughs>
0: I think they might have had a great respect for the car, given its tradition.
2: Well, there's a lot of love for the older ones, and it doesn't matter how far back you go, really. Uh, there's a lot of aficionados out there, and there's a lot of people today who have a second or a third car as a hobby or whatever they want to do. And that's exactly where they fit in.
0: Now, my brother-in-law is not super rich, or he has a quite a large extended family, so he's got a lot of things to do. He just loves the cars and loves to look after them and one of the things was with the v12 jaguar he looks after the engine particularly well and if you do that it's a fantastic engine
2: it's an amazing engine david and a lot of people are scared of it they open the bonnet and they look in there and they see this huge power plant but it's beautifully made it's undistressed basically will never wear out as long as you service it don't let them overheat that's the biggest problem people don't replace hoses and whatever and they lose the water and that's when they have an issue. But if you look after it, it'll keep you going forever.
0: I must confess, when I got in the XJS, I opened the boot and there were tools there, so um, (laughs) I don't think that necessarily represented the fact it was going to break down, but it did represent the fact that he did keep them handy so that he could uh, do all that was necessary. The 88 Sovereign, it used to be a wedding car. It just has that cool elegance about it that tours around like a lounge chair you felt very good in it
2: yeah again look it's the ride in them um it's the style it's the size and basically when you're talking that car they went back up until 1968 when they were introduced and sir william lyons the founder of the company who styled most of the cars, that was the last car that he ever styled and created, and he said it was his best.
0: The boot sort of narrows down a bit. We toured with my uh, brother-in-law one time. He's a great guy to tour with. We had four in the car because he's fantastic at packing a boot, because the Jaguar <laughs> boots are not, you know, they're not a big, square, tall tail that allows you a huge amount of room. But anyway... The XJS convertible sports car. I had to drive it down to the holiday resort place of Phillip Island. It was just, when you got in it with the timber dash and that, it created a great feeling for me. And you know what? It wasn't so much because I remember it, we never had were rich enough to have one when we were young, but it just reminded me of what I would have strived to achieve.
2: The same thing, really, they're a grand touring car. They were introduced in 75 and for a long, long time people cried out to have a convertible or at least a partly open car. Finally, they delivered the goods because the company in America um, was actually building them and they were very popular. And then Jaguar took it on themselves and that is probably the most graceful style of XJS of all of them.
0: I think so. The back doesn't have that turret look that you get in the hard top coupe. It obviously has to not have that because of the fold-down roof, but the back looks almost like one of those old-fashioned speed boats, that lovely sort of tail on it. Uh, it was a very enjoyed driving. The thing that I really enjoyed about it was it was a sort of car that prompted a conversation with other motorists, including guys on touring motorbikes. It was one you could stop and have a bit of a chat about.
2: It's a funny thing, isn't it? Because You drive them and enjoy them, but I don't think a lot of people or most people think it's a snobby thing or anything like that. At least these days, they know that you're an enthusiast of some sort and it's a car that you're looking after and and treasure. And that brings all sorts of people around. I mean, often I find that you pull up at a service station and stick some petrol in and there's a bloke there in a van and he wants to have a talk and it goes on and on. Les,
0: lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time.
2: Good on you, David. Thank you so much.
0: And that's Les Hughes from uh, Jaguar magazine. He's the editor worldwide, and we were talking about some old Jaguars, oldish Jaguars, in driving them round and just exuding the character of that mark.
2: This is Overdrive across Australia.
0: Dave. Uh, G'day, mate. Uh, We had a drive of the F Pace Jaguar the other day. Uh, Did it appeal to you as it drove up to to your house? Yeah, it did. It's got quite a nice
3: look to it, doesn't
0: it? Most SUVs, and this is a medium sized one, they are, to my mind, a lot of them tend to look rather boxy. Uh, Land Rover Discovery Sport is probably a better one. Just a straight Land Rover is a bit. uh, boxy and that Um, the other ones they're starting to get there next week we'll have a look at the mercedes-benz glc class which comes among other things one with a fastback look i'm not sure that enhances the look or not but really to make an suv look good is pretty hard going isn't it
3: yeah yeah and i think they've really nailed it with this one it's quite quite an elegant not not, not over designed really it's a, a subtle elegance
0: yeah, the Jaguar, I think, I think it is too. It's got a reasonably long nose, but without being too aardvark that I think some cars tend to look. I, I think of the Infinity, some of their models there, particularly the early, early ones were like that. This has a strong nose, but not over the top. And the grille on the front is clearly modern Jaguar, not the old style, but clearly modern. And I think, as you say, the balance of that is rather nice.
3: It does it very well. Like it's a, it's, it's a little bit aggressive and a little bit eye-catching, but without being sort of uh, gaudy, if you will.
0: And I also like the tail light of it as well, because it's got a little bit of a, a throwback look to what we re- originally saw in the E-Type, a little round light and then the, the blinkers and that extend around the side of the car a little. Uh, that's also a look that they've got in their other sports car, the F-Type. And now they've carried that over, so it's it's not over the top. It's a very relatively small lights, but they just carry that character with them as well.
3: Oh, I think uh, Jaguar enthusiasts might be upset with me, but uh, yeah, A I didn't notice, and B it didn't particularly jump out of me as a, as a as a amazingly attractive rear of the vehicle, to be honest.
0: Very hard to make an SUV look good at the back. That's true. It's not going to necessarily appeal to young people, but it's a nice little nod for us oldies, I think. Uh, yeah. A very strong grille on the front as well. Uh, so a little bit of tradition in the, well, tradition in the modern sense, without going back to the old Mark IIs or that, but uh, not bad. Now, this class, do you know this class that's uh, medium-sized SUVs greater than $60,000? has gone up about 45% in the sales last year.
3: Yeah, no wonder Jaguar wants to get in on it.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think that's exactly the point. Uh, it, it might not be a traditional class for Jaguar. They are saloons and sports cars, as you we know, but if you're not building SUVs now, you're denying yourself a major part of the market. The Mercedes GLC, that's up 380%. Now, these are small numbers. Uh, For the whole year, they sold about about 4,400. But the next one is the Land Rover Discovery Sport and then the BMW X3 and followed by the Audi Q5. But the thing about uh, Land Rover and, you know, with Range Rover as well, they have both the Land Rover and the Range Rover in this class. And they also happen to have the Freelander, although that's pretty well not selling anymore. That's uh, gone. But the point about that is that you combine those two together and they're doing very, very well. In fact, Mercedes' first Land Rover is second, but only by about all oh, 20 vehicles, uh, so when you put the second model from the Range Rover point in there, you get that Land Rover's doing very, very well.
3: And they, they, they look spectacular. I love the Land Rovers, and the the only thing that I reckon the Jag has over the Land Rover is the fact that everybody's got a Land Rover. Uh, I live in the inner west, and there's tons of them around, but you could have, uh, with the Jaguar, you could have something a little bit different, but still, that looks uh, right up there, I think, with those, uh, those other cars you've been naming.
0: Yeah, it's it's a case I think that they've got character, and I think the F pace continues that. Yeah, I agree. Well, from Jaguar, of course. Now, you you, the interior. Did you like the interior of the Jaguar?
3: Yeah, yeah, I thought they've fitted that really well. I love this move towards bigger, uh, bigger screens. uh, As a technologist, I just uh, think that the bigger and the brighter the touchscreen, the better for me.
0: The nice thing about it is it's rather wide and so you can divide it into two you can have something that's quite clear still there and something else on the left like your radio and and on the right you can have your navigation it's gives you that sort of uh, quali- uh, vision I like them big too because very small screens don't fit my fingers very well at all if it particularly if it's a touchscreen
3: if you're driving you just don't want to have to have precise aim to get the right button you just want to throw your hand at it
0: Okay, Matt, so uh, enjoyable to drive. Maybe we might uh, have a go of the competition, the Mercedes GLC, in the near future and see how they compare. Thanks for your time.
3: Sounds great. Thanks, Dave.
0: This has been Overdrive. My thanks to Fiona Patton, Les Hughes, Matthew Brown and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments of each of the features by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.